Well, the sermon is, as you see, uh, Parenting 101, Reaching the Heart, Getting to the Heart. Um, But this is not just, I pray, I pray, pray, pray. Nobody came here today who's not a parent, and you just saw the... um, saw the graphic slide up here, uh, slide, and, and saw the bulletin, and you clocked out, checked out. Said, well, man, the one Sunday that I came, I should have stayed in bed or went to another church. You know, this is not for me. No, this is for you. This is uh, from a really, really famous, I guess you could say all the Bible's famous, but this passage, uh, especially to the Jews, to this day, they would recite this passage along with a couple of others every single day. They would wear it in boxes around their head, they would wear it in, in boxes attached to their arm. Um, it was that special to them. Um, this is an important passage. This was God's strategy to reach, bless, and impact the world. And this is carrying over to the New Testament. It, it becomes more crystal clear to us uh, with the words of Jesus and the epistles. But all of them build on this. This is God's strategy. This is how we disciple. This is how we parent. This is how we live our lives as believers and, and how we become salt and light to outsiders. So I pray that you're encouraged and you're helped by this. Um, our sermon outline today, just three, three quick points I want to make, okay? Three quick points. So don't just think parenting, think discipleship, okay? Parenting and discipleship. Number one, start with your own heart. Point number two, mind the mundane moments. And point number three, stick with God's story. Stick with God's story. Just for kicks, I googled the word parenting early this morning when I got up, and I saw that there were, can we get this slide up, 256 million hits. How about that? Does that make you nervous? (laughs) New parents that go to Google for help are going to feel overwhelmed and really confused probably, but a lot of people are getting their their tips from from the internet, right? Um, So we're going back 3,000 years We're going back 3,000 years to the children of Israel. They are scattered on the plains of Moab. They're about to cross the Jordan River, and they're about to inhabit the promised land, Canaan, which is filled with enemies, filled with giants, powerful fortified cities they have to overtake and conquer. They're probably shaking in their boots. And beyond that, Moses, this is his last sermon. He's old. He's being chastened by the Lord for disobedience, so he's about to go and be with God. That doesn't sound like punishment, really, does it? I'm going to chasten you. You've got to come with me, Moses. (laughs) He's going to rest with the Lord, and he's about to turn the uh, leadership baton over to an untested leader, Joshua. So the people are nervous. They're unsettled, but they're all there, not just parents. Everyone's there. Singles, children, babies, moms, dads, grandparents. Everyone is here on the plains of Moab. And this is Moses' final sermon to them. This is, I don't like to call it marching orders, but in a way, they know they're about to invade a territory. And and they're they're viewing this as the, what's Moses going to tell us? How do we attack? How do we overcome? How do we destroy these people? But the parents will be thinking, where are we going to live? What about the enemies? What about the pagan influences with my children? They're really scared. This is a really unsettling and fearful and confusing time for all the people that are there. And look, is there anything new under the sun (laughs) for parents, right? Don't we think those same things in the fallen world that we live in? Especially a new parent asked them. I remember when I was in California at seminary, a friend that I was mentoring, uh, they were pregnant with their first child. And man, this guy was like, you know, peaceful, easy feeling kind of guy like the Eagles. I think of the Eagles when I think of him. He never... 
let anything get to him. And one day we were, we were in my office and we were talking. I'm like, man, how's it feel? Just in a few weeks, man, you're going to be a new dad. Aren't you excited? And he goes, yeah, I'm just, oh. <laughs> and he just broke down and he said, I am so scared, man. I'm so scared to bring a child into this fallen world with all these, and off he went. And I said, dude, dude, we, we, we can help each other. We can encourage each other. I think I only had three kids at the time. Um, but we, we, we were really helping each other and encouraging one another. I think that's overwhelming for especially a new parent. Or maybe not. Maybe it's for the parent whose children are about to be teenagers. It's really scary, right? But in general, it's just scary to think of discipling somebody else. That's what parenting really is. It's discipling your children. Even before they're a Christian, you're, there's a form of discipleship taking place. So... This is a, a really special time in the, in the lives of the Israelites. And as I said earlier, this is God's plan A. There is no plan B. He never changed this. He, when he told Abraham, through your descendants, I'm going to bless the whole earth, uh, and I'm going to impact the world, and I'm going to show the world what I'm like through you and through your descendants. And th- these, are the, these are the instructions for how that's going to take place, this Shema passage. It's called the Shema, by the way. That's the Hebrew word for hear. So you may have heard this before, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9 is the Shema. It's Shema ye Israel. It's hear, O Israel. Hear, listen, fear, obey. That's the first part of this. So discipleship 101 and parenting 101 for the whole church, not just for parents. Here's point number one. Start with your own heart. That's where it always starts. Does that surprise you that parenting doesn't start with kids? It starts with parents. And discipleship doesn't start with your, <laughs> I don't even like to call it project. That's one of the problems in the church today. People feel like they're projects instead of human beings made in God's image that are going to get help and encouragement. Um, but you don't start with the person you're going to disciple. You start with your own heart. Check it out. Look at this. Verse number, uh, we'll just read the beginning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Verse 6, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. They shall be, let me read that again, on your heart. It starts with you. If you start with your child or with your spouse or with the person you're discipling, you are already on, an, on a tangent, on an angle that's going to take you away from the heart of what God wants you to do. He wants all these commandments to be on your heart. He wants them to impact you. He wants them to shape your perception of the world and how you view money and how you view sex and how you view your career and how you view relationships and suffering and success and education. All of those things. God wants all these. And and by the way, when he says these things that I teach, that would represent the whole Old Testament Torah, the whole law, the Pentateuch, even though we're only in Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Okay, we're in, the, we're in the last one here before Moses. That means comprehensively all these statutes and commandments, they're to be on our heart. And if you have spent any time reading God's commandments, it's pretty humbling, isn't it? 700 and something commandments, and they're reduced uh, you know, to 10 commandments for our God accommodated us, and then Jesus reduces it to just two. He doesn't really reduce it. He, he summarizes it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's to be on your heart. Now, I got a question for you and I don't want you to be angry. I just want to get in your kitchen a little bit, okay? 
If those laws are constantly, you're being exposed to those laws, what should be the one takeaway effect before you start pouring in anybody else? Humility. Humility. Deep, heartfelt humility. Some people might use the word broken. I know that word gets overused today. But, but, but that's true, a brokenness, because we see, here's God's commandments. They're infallible, right? They're, they're inviolable. They're, they're, they're there. They don't change. They, they're inflexible. And here's us. Here's His standard. Here's where we're at. Even as believers, how short do we fall? Now listen, God doesn't want that to be our identity, brokenness and failure and weakness, but it is a reality. When, when we apply the law to our own heart, we see how far short we fall, and that leads us to confession, repentance, restoration. That's what Martin Luther, the reformer, said all of the Christian life is. It is death and resurrection, death and resurrection, brokenness and restoration, humility, and then confidence, right? That's what the gospel does. It humbles you, but it, but it encourages you and, and builds confidence in you because you know I'm so sinful, right? Jesus had to die for my sins. I'm that sinful, but I'm so loved by God that he was glad to do it. That's what the law should do to us. Old Testament law seen through the lens of the New Testament covenant, right? So this law shall first be on your heart. And you say, well, where are you going with this? Well, here's where I'm going. I think people were discipling, children too, our children. One of the things they really need to see, you can read a book, go to Google, and they're telling you, do this, be this. Sometimes what's missing, in my opinion, is be real. Be a real human being, okay? Let your children see the times when you fail them, not just God, but them too. And you're failing God when you fail them, obviously. Here's a little test, okay? Some circles that I've walked in that were really... uh, and we can get into this a little bit more later. Just really strict, never let them see you sweat. Be the authority. Rule with an iron fist in your home. Parent with an iron fist. You know, even when you mess up, you know, kind of, you don't need to talk to them about all your failures. Um, man, that produces something in your kid. Our kids are more intelligent, even when they're young, than we realize. They see patterns. They see. They know already. And, it, and it's good for us to confess sins to them. Here, so here's a little test. When was the last time you asked the person you're discipling or one of your children or your grandchildren, everybody gets it here, when's the last time you confessed a sin to them, against them, okay, and ask for their forgiveness? Don't answer out loud. If those times are really, really extremely rare for you, that means either A, you're killing it as a parent and come talk to me and help me, okay? Or B, you're living in la-la land a little bit. And you are withholding one of the most powerful tools that God has given you to reach your children and to help the people you're trying to disciple. Humility and reality. It's like, look, how in the world, how in the world are your children and the people you're trying to disciple going to see the liberating power of the cross if they never see you confessing sin and being restored and repenting and going back to God and seeing the Holy Spirit do what Bree talked about earlier and just bringing restoration and times of refreshing in your life. I think our children need to see that. They need to be a part of that. We don't need to hide that from them. They already know. They already know we fail. They already know we sin. They see it. They see us yelling. They hear us arguing with our spouse. Or if we're a single parent, they see how exhausted we get and easily irritable and annoyed and we want to do comfort, you know, binge watching on TV or whatever else. They know all those things. It's good to confess those things. 
That's not a sign of weakness at all. At all. I think that's a sign of strength. If there's no place in your paradigm for parenting or, for, or discipleship, if there's not a place for brokenness, humility, confession of sin, then that means there's not really a place for the gospel. And that's a big problem. That's a big problem, guys. That's the one thing that I think is missing from a lot of quote-unquote Christian parenting books is be real, let them see, man, I'm just as needy and, and, and at times broken as you are. And look, together, we'll go to God and we'll ask Him to heal. Some of the, some of the most formative conversations I've ever had with my children were times when I had sinned against them, and some of them are in here, you can ask them. It's when I've sinned against them, I had to go to them and, and confess my sin, ask their forgiveness, ask for their help, and even have a conversation like, but Daddy, yes, I forgive you, but you do this a lot. <laughs> it seems to be, you know, in, in their little... Uh, immature maybe, or, or not fully matured minds, they're trying to say, this is, this is a pattern, so are you, really, are you really sorry? Are you really repenting? You keep doing this. And that's good. That's helped me. It's helped them. We can all be real. So I think our kids need to see both the confidence and the brokenness that the gospel produces. They need to see that. Um, because listen, the one thing that God promises that he will never, ever despise, do you know what it is? I've said it before. I'm sorry, but I need to say it again. If you read through the entire Bible, there's only one thing that the Bible says God will never despise. It's not, I had an incredible devotion time this morning. Or man, I'm killing it in prayer. Or my, I've evangelized my entire neighborhood. You know what it says God will never despise? is a broken heart. A broken heart. And listen, we won't despise that either. When you demonstrate that, when you, these things are on your heart and you demonstrate that to your children, they're going to imitate you. When your, children, when your children come to you and they tell on themselves, doesn't it kind of change the encounter? When they come to you and they're cold and they're calloused and they're resistant and they're defending themselves and they're insecure and they won't own up to their sin, man, it's hard. Those are the hard encounters I have as a parent. But when my, when my children come to me and they say, Daddy, you're right, I did step on Tyler on purpose or whatever it is, you know? <laughs> it changes things. It softens your heart. You're like, okay, well, thank you. Let's talk about it. Let's both go to God together and ask Him for help for this problem, for this sin. It changes things. Our kids need to see that. My children have never not forgiven me, by the way. And I'm not saying my kids are awesome. I'm not. They're, you know, they're not any more awesome than anybody else's or any more terrible. What I'm saying is that may be the very entry point into parenting that you may be missing out on. Those are really powerful times that draw you close to your child. You can show your children how the gospel turns everything upside down or right side up, I guess. You can show them how God's power is made perfect in weakness. Show them all those things. The gospel affects every personal relationship we have, starting with the ones closest to us. Children, our spouse, the people we're discipling. So that's the first order of business here, is that God commands for these things to be on our, our hearts. And, and I think of the airplane, you know, whenever you fly and they do the little, you know, in the event of a water landing, they always say that so, so calmly. In the event of a water landing, <laughs> I'm, I'm seeing like, ah, the plane's going down. No, they say, uh, you know, if there's some turbulence or whatever and you need oxygen and these masks fall down, what do they tell you to do first? Put yours on first, right? You can't help anybody if you're unconscious there, cowboy, right? <laughs> And it's the same thing. Let these laws and commandments 
be on your heart first. Put your oxygen mask on first. You can't tell people something that you've never heard. You can't show them places that you've never been. They can't be in awe of something that you're not in awe of. It won't work. That's hypocrisy. It won't work. Your kids need the, to see the effect of the law of God applied to your heart and how it produces a deep humility and a deep confidence and a compassion. Have you guys ever heard of the uh, tiger mom model of parenting? I, don't, I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but if it does, so be it. You know, we all get offended sometimes. I read an article, I think it was in Time Magazine, when I was in seminary back in the day in California, and I had to read it twice. And then I asked my wife to read it because I'm like, this can't, be, this can't be right. And she read it, and we were both, oh my word, this is crazy. Um, it was an excerpt from Amy Chow's book, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, and reading her article was really painful. I'm going to read just an excerpt to you, okay? Because remember, I'm telling you, let these laws be on your heart first. She's, this is how she began. Here are some things my daughters were never allowed to do. Attend a sleepover. Now, some of this is, is good. I'm, I'm right there. Attend a sleepover. Have a play date. Be in a school play. Complain about not being in a school play. Watch TV or play computer games. Choose their own extracurricular activities. Get any grade less than an A. Not be the number one student in every subject except gym and drama. Play any instrument other than the piano or violin. Not play the piano or violin. Does that sound like a joyful childhood to you? I think I got an ulcer just reading that. And that's, that's a really soft edited part of the article. It got worse and worse and worse. Um, her method is designed to produce children who excel. I understand that. I get that. Uh, they, they're not just on a row. They're like, uh, man, my mind just went blank. What's the top person in your class? What's that called? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, top of the class, you waltz into Yale, you cruise out with a six-digit salary waiting for you with honors. Um, but it produces proud, self-willed, self-sufficient, strong children with absolutely no comprehension of grace, I think, in my opinion. If you take that paradigm to its limit, um, I think of this when I think of that, uh, <laughs> when I think of that article, here's what I think. Tiger mom. You know, God doesn't call us tigers. I'm sorry he doesn't. I know we, that's kind of the culture we're in. Be a tiger. It's like we're sheep. <laughs> we're sheep. Let's, let's be a sheep parent. That's what God wants us to be. Tender, compassionate, loving, kind, gracious, firm. Yes, when you need to be. But um, I, I just don't think that model that you read about really in the world comports, computes, whatever the word is, with what we see here in Deuteronomy and what we see in the New Testament. I mean, I can't think of a greater way uh, to do what Paul tells us to not do. Exasperate your children. Provoke them to wrath. Man, I, I mean, the kind of person I am, that model of parenting would drive me over the edge. It would, and some people I'm sure it is. But in that paradigm, there's no place for weakness. There's no place for failure for her children or for her. And that's a tremendous problem. So children have very tender and moldable minds. They do. And man, that's, you have to be really, really careful and prayerful. So... We need to be parents who celebrate grace and let our children see the impact that God's law is having on us. Uh, if we pretend to be a perfect parent, then guess what? Our children are going to imitate that. They're going to pretend to be perfect children and then 
things are going to go south really fast. Won't be any need for Jesus. It'll be moralistic, uh, Phariseeistic, legalistic. So the Word of God says this. It says, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly and let it wash over you, let it restore you. That's all that I believe Moses is saying here. So that's point one. And here's point number two. And listen, I hope that encourages you that it's okay to, to be a real human being in front of the person you're discipling. That will help them. You don't need to hide those times when you're disobedient to them. Confess it. Pray together about it. Here's point number two, and I hope this encourages you. Mind the mundane moments. Mind the mundane moments. Um, by the way, this is a rifle approach to parenting and discipleship, not a shotgun. I'm not going to cover. This is totally not an exhaustive. This is just a one message. Things that have been on my heart that I wanted to share with you. I get asked all the time about parenting, and I think people are looking for the silver bullet. You know, just give me the give me the give me advice. Give me, they don't ever want point one. You know, just give me the advice. I well, hang on a minute. There are some some practical things, um, but there's no holy grail or silver bullet out there, guys. You know that, right? There's not. In fact, if you treat the Bible like an encyclopedia or an almanac and you're looking for the section on parenting, it's going to be just one or two pages. It really is. But the whole Bible is filled with illustrations and help and principles and encouragement for how to parent well. And this is one of those places right here. Mind the mundane moments, and I want you to look with me at verse number... We'll start at 6 again. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And then, man, check this out, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children, comma, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. First of all, teach them diligently. Scholars debate back and forth over what that means. It can either mean one of two things. I actually think it means both. Some people say the etymology, the background of the word in Hebrew used there, it's an engraving word. You engrave things. And whenever you engrave something on a tombstone or on leather, or you have to do it what? Over and over again. Over like a stencil. Do it over and over. So repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. The second idea is that this is accuracy. This is just going slow, taking your time. I guess if you were going to get a tattoo... You would want the dude or woman, whoever it is, doing the tattoo to take their time, right? Like, like slow down, man. Don't, don't, you don't want, whoops, you don't want to hear that when you're getting a tattoo, I would imagine, right? Uh-oh, sorry, 50% discount. No, you want accuracy, repetition, and great care. That's what this is talking about. Teach your children diligently. These things that I'm teaching you today, Moses says, all the words, all the impact that the law of God is having on you. But check this out. It's not just, I've thought about this so much this week, and I think I've missed this in the past. Verse 7 says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Now, I think the rest of this verse and those that follow, he's still talking about your children to some extent. But I believe he's also talking about discipleship. This is, remember, this is God's plan A for how we're going to change the world, transform the world, to use Steve Jobs' words, I guess. Come with me and let's change the world together kind of thing. This is God's plan A. And, and, and this is community. This is the power of community right here in this passage. You're going to talk about these things with other people. Right? You're not, this is not just for Sunday. 
This is like day to day. This is all the, all the interesting things here. Look at this. When you sit in your house, so when you're inactive, when you walk by the way, when you're active, active, inactive, both times are on times for you. Being able to relay these things that God is putting on your heart, sharing with your children and others. When you lie down, when you rise, so that's like sun up to sundown, bed to breakfast. All this is like a comprehensive manual here for discipleship and parenting. And then check this out, verse eight. Eight. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. I think this is metaphorical. Okay, like whatever your hand finds to do, you're to net. This is like an endless activity. And this is not meant to overwhelm us. Like, oh my word, you're always doing this? You mean I'm always have a Bible and I'm reading it to my kids? No, that's not what he's talking about. It's not. It just means that your worldview is impacting you and you're pouring that into your children and into your disciples. It's not just like a power devotion you have at night. Those are great. Family devotions are, are awesome. If that's the kind of thing you're into, to each his own, we're all different. We all have different rhythms and seasons. I wish I could show you a video of me doing a family devotion with my whole family. You would, you would laugh. I, I do my best, God knows. Um, but I really like this paradigm. <laughs> like from sun up to sundown, be open, be, be perceptive to opportunities, those mundane moments to be able to pour into your children. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, whatever you're doing. They shall be as frontless between your eyes, whatever you're thinking, right? You shall write them on the doorpost of your house private life, and on your gates, public life. You see, this is like comprehensive strategy here, and I love that. That doesn't, that doesn't make me feel exhausted or wearied. I'm like, thank you, God. Anybody can do this. It, this is, so often we think that parenting and discipling is for the experts. You've got to have a Bible degree and a seminary degree, and you've got to be able to sit down, and, and, and you've got to have the gift of communication. And it's like, you know what God says? Just spend time with the people that you want to pour into, and be open and available and perceptive and be listening. And, you know, God gives us all these gold moments. And sometimes I really believe this. I preached a sermon on this a while back. Uh, I didn't apply it this way, but I could. It's from, I think, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, I think. And, and God is telling them, you know, the temple had been destroyed by the enemies and they're rebuilding it. They're rebuilding Solomon's temple. It's a lot smaller and a lot less glamorous. And there were some old people that were there watching it when the foundation was laid. They were there when Solomon's temple was still standing, and they began to cry. They began to cry because they're like, man, this is never going to be the glorious temple it was before. This is such a small thing in our eyes, and God rebukes them. You remember what he says? He says, don't despise the day of small things. A foundation was just laid for a new temple. Don't you dare despise that. And I think so often we're waiting for fireworks and silver bullets and holy grail moments. Or the power devotion, like that's when my, my kids, the lights are going to go on. Probably not. Probably not going to be when the light comes on for your kids. If it is, praise God, that's awesome. It, it was a planned time. I have found <clears throat> the most strategic, impacting, and powerful moments as a parent <clears throat> and when I disciple are unplanned, mundane, spontaneous moments. And I'll give you a couple of illustrations because I know everybody wants that. Um... Once when my son was really young, my first, first born son, we were driving in a van um, and my, my younger son had put a quarter in the CD player and like fried it. So no music, <laughs> turned out to be a gift, no music, right? So we could talk. So I'm listening to my son, I picked him up from uh, preschool, I think, and he's singing this song. 
Sing the song you made up. <clears throat> he says, God loves these people. God loves these people. God loves everybody except for the bad guys. Uh, and I'm like, well, hey, son, that's a cute song. What was that? He said, God loves everybody except for the bad people. And I'm like, okay, who's that leave? <laughs> right? My, song, my son's singing this little <clears throat> cute little song he made up. Uh, and it's, this, is his, this is his view of the world. This is his view of God. This is his view of salvation. It's just spilling out. I didn't plan that moment. God just gave it to me. I'm like, hey, hey, son, <clears throat> are you a good person or a bad person? He said, I'm a good person. I said, so God loves you because you're a good person then, right? He said, right. I said, is that what the Bible teaches though? Now he's young. All, all I'm saying is this, and that may not have been an explosive moment, but I guarantee you <clears throat> that helped me. He might not remember it, but it helped me to know, hey, this is how my kid thinks about God. I got work to do here. And we had that, our, our little minivan turn into a theology classroom that day because I was able to tell him, hey, son, for all I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I know you may not think of yourself as an Adolf Hitler or Charles Manson, but you know, read the Sermon on the Mount, right? <laughs> We're all guilty. We're all condemned apart from Christ. Um, here, here was another instance. Somebody gave my oldest daughter a really sentimental necklace at a time in her life where she was really, just really struggling. Um, man, this necklace meant so much to her. And we were out playing in a big field behind our house, and she came back in, and she felt for it, and it was gone. It was missing. And oh, man, she was torn up, torn up about it. And so I saw like, man, this is, you know, I was tempted to be like, come on, it's not a big deal. It's just a necklace. And no, we're not going to go traipsing all through that field looking for it. It's probably gone. I was tempted to. And look, I'm not putting a feather in my hat because there's nine out of 10 other stories that I did do that. Okay, trust me. Um, but I said, you know what? Let's, let's pray. Let's, let's ask God to help us find your necklace. And she said, daddy, there's no way. That field's huge. It could be anywhere. It could be in the water. We ran all over the place when I was playing. I said, I know, but, but God cares about this. God cares about lost things, doesn't he? Isn't there some stories about lost things that God cares about? Sheep, coins, sons, right? I said, let's, let's pray and let's ask God to help us find your necklace and tell him it's impossible. We don't even know where to start looking, God. And we prayed right there. We got on our knees and we prayed and we went outside and I know not every story ends this way, guys. I, trust me, I understand. But within five minutes, I saw it laying, uh, laying right beside the pond, the water. I, I mean, it was almost, it was one of those surreal moments where I saw it and I was like, oh my goodness. Like, God, God's real. <laughs> I, I thought, God's awesome. God's good. God's so kind to like give me this moment with my daughter. He didn't have to. And God wouldn't have been any less good had he not answered that prayer, but he did. And I guarantee you my daughter will remember that day for a long time. Those were unplanned, spontaneous, mundane moments that I could have very easily despised. Like, Jackson, just, just be quiet. Daddy's trying to think. Or, honey, it's not a big deal. Get over it. I think so often we despise those moments. And man, God wants to use those to transform our kids and transform us or transform the person that we're seeking to disciple. So mind the mundane moments. There's a song you probably know. And I'm trying to remember uh, who the guy is that sang this. Cats in the Cradle. You guys remember that song? In the set. Who is it? Thank you. Now, I'm not going to sing this, but I promise you, it takes every, every bone of resistance in my body to not. But check this out. He didn't write this song. His, he helped. His wife wrote a poem about her ex-husband's relationship with his father. 
And he found it one day and he said, wow, you're on to something here. And so they turned it into a song. And he said this about the song because he had a son. He said, this song scares me to death. <laughs> if you've heard it, you know why. Check out, this is just a few of the lyrics. Because what we're getting at here is what your children need and the person you're discipling, what they need the most from you is for you to spend time with them. For you to spend time with them, right? It's not going to be that power devo probably or the family worship that like that five or ten minutes. It's going to be just the comprehensive as the years go by, the time you spend with them is going to be the most impactful. My child arrived just the... No, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> My child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way. But there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away. Man, I want to cry reading this. And he was talking for I knew it, and as he grew, he'd say, I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. And so will the people we disciple will be just like us, right? And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man on the moon. When you coming home, Dad, I don't know when, but we'll get together then. You know we'll have a good time then. My son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, Dad. <laughs> Come on, let's play. Can you teach me the throw? I said, not today. I got a lot to do. He said, that's okay. And he walked away, but his smile never dimmed. I said, I'm going to be like him. Yeah, you know I'll be like him. If you've read the song or the lyrics, it's exactly what happens. Son turns out to be just like his dad. It had no time. And by the way, it came back to bite the dad because the son didn't have time for the dad. In. Anyway, all that to say, time is important. And time is what I'm running out of right now. So... When you're with your children, with your, with, when you're with the person you're trying to disciple, use these mundane moments and carve pathways for them to return to God in the ordinary moments. You know, they talk about all these pathways we create in our brain, bad, bad things, like looking at, at things you shouldn't that creates a pathway. It's like you're clearing a path through the jungle and it's easy to go down next time. It's easy to go down next time. If it was hard to click that mouse button on that inappropriate image then, it'd be easier next time, and then eventually you don't even you give no thought to it. It's the same way with discipleship and with parenting. When these things are on your heart, and you're taking these mundane moments that are not extraordinary, they seem like small things, you're using those to direct your children and your disciples to Christ. To Christ, you're cutting pathways. You're making it very easy for them to view the world they live in through the lens of, man, God is on his throne and everything belongs to him and God cares about the little things and the lost things and the way I think about him and myself. You're carving pathways for them. That's why Jesus was so irresistible to people. That's why children found him so irresistible and so did harlots and tax collectors because he cared. He wanted to spend time with them. You know, the disciples in Mark 10, uh, they were rebuking parents trying to bring their children to Jesus. And they said, he's, he's too busy. He doesn't have time for this. And, and it, that's one of the only times in the Bible it says Jesus became angry because they were misrepresenting him. And sometimes we do too. <laughs> we're too busy to really pour into the people that we love and care about. So this is an all-encompassing message. And I think we, we need to do a better job as Christians of erasing these lines between sacred and secular. This is like really sacred, and we worship God on the weekends, and we worship God all the time. Let your children see that. Let your disciples see that. Cademan's Call is one of my favorite groups, and they have a song called The Emptiest Day. And to this day, it's one of my favorite songs because of this, this part. This is talking about God. They say you live in hospitals and trenches and towers in the sky. 
But I'm not dying or fighting any war except on the inside. The words I find impossible to mention are written on a star. They say that I can find you in a flower, but I need you in my car. That's what, to me, this, this passage is talking about. God can be with you in the car. And uh, you may not be dying or fighting any war, except these thoughts of condemnation and guilt, and God's there too. He's, not, he's transcendent, but He's eminent. He's close. He's near. He's in everything. That's what discipleship really is. So let me close with uh, point number three. This is quick, okay? Stick with God's story. Stick with God's story. Point number one was, this starts in your own heart. Point number two, don't despise and miss these mundane moments. And here's point number three. Stick with God's story. I was going to call this, take the long look. Take the long look. Because look at verse 20 here in chapter six. This is so incredible. When your son or daughter ask you in time to come, See that in verse 20? One of these days, all this time you spent with your children, letting them see you serve God, fail God, ask God to, to grant you restoration and to repent and pouring into them. After all this time, your son or your daughter is going to come to you and they're going to say, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Now, full stop right there. Pull the car over for a minute, as Jeff used to say. Do you know what he's saying here? One of these days, eventually, the time is going to come where that person that you're pouring your life into, and you haven't despised these mundane moments, they're going to say, um, what's this all about? <laughs> Why do you do this? Why do you go to church every Sunday, Dad? Why do you take us to church every Sunday? Or they, or they may say... Uh, why, why should we bother with all this? All this religion, all this Christianity. Dad, mom, or discipler, I see that, that truth is important to you, that God is important to you, but why? And, and should he be important to me? This is like the payoff moment every parent prays for, right? And it's really interesting to me the, the way that God tell, says we're supposed to answer. Because what I would have told you years ago, I would have gone straight to verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that He might preserve us alive as we are to this day. That's where I would have went first. I would have answered them because God said to, and if you don't, He's going to get you. <laughs> Seriously, that was my answer to everything. That was the way I discipled. That's the way I parented. Why should we do all these things? Because you listen to me right now, young man or young lady. Because <laughs> God, is, is, He could squash you like a bug. Don't you understand that? And He's powerful and He's on His throne and which is true, he is, but I would have answered with a commandment. I would have answered their question with a commandment or with a principle. Why do you keep the commandments? Because of the commandment, right? But that's not what this says to do. This is interesting. God says you answer with a story. <laughs> you see this? Look at this. You answer with a story. Look at verse 21. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and against all his household before his eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. Man, I missed that. How did I miss that for all those years? Do you see? This is the story of the gospel. Dad, mom, why do you bother? Why are you so different from the rest of the world? Why do you serve God and follow God and Honor, why do you give 10% or whatever percentage you give? 
Why do you say no to the things that would be so indulging and pleasurable? Because, son, because we were slaves. We were helpless. We were powerless. We were, we were captives to Satan and to our own fallen flesh. But God, God delighted in us so much that he rescued us with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He came and he, and this is the best they knew in the Old Testament, the, the closest parallel to the coming gospel, right? We had the clear pitch, we had the 1080, uh, they had the, you know, 480 or whatever it is. We have high definition. It would have been the Exodus. God came and he like plagued Egypt with all these plagues and he preserved his people and brought them out. You know, the Egyptians were God's enemies and they were sinful and, and God delivered us. And maybe the follow-up question will be, well, wait a minute, Dad, we're sinful too. So what's the difference between the Egyptians and, and between us? Why are we not, we're not any better than them? And then what's the answer? Well, there was this, there was this issue of the lamb, son. You're right. <laughs> we were no better than the Egyptians. And the only difference between them and us was there had to be a slaughtered lamb that we put the blood over the doorpost and over the, 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 the windows so that the angel of destruction would pass over us and rescue us and redeem us. Because in every house that night, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. And you see where this is going. That's the gospel. Why should we bother, Dad? Because God loves us so much. He gave us a lamb and slaughtered it on our behalf. And you remember what John the Baptist said when Jesus, he saw Jesus walking to be baptized for the first time? He said, behold, what? The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is just the gospel, guys, in the Old Testament. Dad, why should we bother? Why bother? And that day will come when your children or the person you're discipling, they really ask you that. And you did, your answer is not, well, son, uh, we obey God, we obey his commandments, so he'll bless us. No, 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 you got it backwards. You got it backwards. No. God blessed us already when we didn't deserve it. And therefore, we obey him out of gratitude. We obey him because we delight in him. We want to serve him. We want to give back to him, right? Why do you give 10% of your money? We wish we could give more, son. God has done so much for us. He, he, out of his poverty, made us rich. So why wouldn't we want to give back to him? We get it backwards sometimes and sound just like other religions in the world that are false. You obey God and he blesses you. Eh, 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 eh. No, that's every other religion in the world. Christianity is uh, God blesses us first. We love him because... He first loved us, right? We have to get it right. Even the commandments in the Old Testament, they start out that way. Uh, you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord delighted in you, and you were his treasure, and he brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, have no other gods before me. We always miss that first part there. It's you were God's children before the Ten Commandments ever came. That's why he gave them to you. This is how life works best, right? 